0: choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they are easy but because they are hard in
1: God's speed, john glenn roger zero g and i feel fine okay, my out. okay i'm out how does it feel for the united states to be the new record holder at last huh when that baby light
0: Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 276 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Minimizing Power, Part 3. Tuesday, April 24th, 2 p.m. Houston time. Shortly after the PC Plus 2 meeting broke up, an exhausted Gene Krantz walked into the VIP gallery. Two reporters at the media console saw him, but dared not attempt to talk to him. When the man at the center of the Apollo 13 crisis appears in the VIP gallery in the middle of the flight, he was not there to talk. He was there to sleep. Since the Gemini program, when NASA began conducting longer missions, the NASA medics had requested and the NASA bosses had provided on-site sleeping quarters for flight controllers who needed to be on call around the clock. The accommodations weren't much, no more than a small windowless room in the mission control building, with a shower, a sink, and two army-style beds. But for the controllers accustomed to sneaking off to an empty conference room if they needed a nap between shifts, it seemed like a luxury. The little bedroom was christened with great fanfare, and as soon as the next mission flew, controllers clamored for the chance to lay claim to it. But those first few who tried it out wished they hadn't bothered. The room was directly off a hallway with heavy foot traffic and chatter. Most of the sound leaked through the plasterboard walls, and the little bit that didn't flooded in whenever the door was open. The door itself had a hydraulic closing device that had apparently never been adjusted properly. When someone entered or exited the room, the door would groan, open reluctantly, and then slam shut with a sleep-shattering bang. Even the shower's pipes banged and groaned. Despite all of this, on nearly every flight there were half a dozen or more dedicated controllers, including Gene Krantz who insisted on staying at the center full-time, so competition for the two cots was usually fierce. When lunar missions started becoming almost routine and fewer people worked consecutive shifts, Krantz had sworn off the noisy controller's bedroom for good. If he needed sleep, he decided he would retreat to the VIP gallery select a seat in one of the far shadowed corners and catch as long a catnap as the schedule permitted. On Tuesday afternoon, Krantz, who had been working for more than 24 unbroken hours, decided to allow himself a break, and with a nod to the reporters working the VIP consoles, he settled into a cushioned chair. He knew that the nap he could steal would be a very short one. From the time Krantz turned his console over to Glenn Lunny late the previous evening, he had spent most of his time in room 210 with his Tiger team, poring over his strip charts and consumables profiles. Although the story the data told him was not a happy one, on the limb side of the room, the picture was at least somewhat promising. After quickly conducting the consumables calculations that followed Aquarius's power-up, Bob Hesselmeyer, the white team Tellmew, reviewed the numbers with Krantz and then, unlike most of the members of the white team, was sent back to the consoles. Hesselmeyer was a good Tellmew, but he was also the youngest one assigned to the Apollo 13 rotation. For the limbs consumables work that had to be done, Krantz preferred Bill Peters, a tailmew on Jerry Griffin's gold team, who had worked every flight since Gus Grissom and John Young's Jiminy 3 in 1965. Krantz's trust in Peters turned out to be well-placed. After sitting down with Krantz for half the morning and conferring with Tom Kelly at Grumman for the other half, Bill Peters made remarkable strides in solving Aquarius's consumables crisis. Tackling the water and power problem first, the two resources in shortest supply, Peters was able to economize even more than Kelly and Hesselmeyer had thought feasible. According to the profiles Peters and his electrical specialists came up with, it appeared possible to run the limb on a minimum configuration of just 12 amps. The limb normally needed about 55 amps of current to stay running. A fully powered limb had about 1800 amp hours to use, divided among four batteries in the descent stage and two in the ascent stage. 12 amps wasn't much compared to this, but after factoring out that power demand over the time it would take the crew to come home and setting aside a small quantity of buffer power In case of further emergencies, Peters didn't figure he could afford to use much more. The more electricity the Telmue saved, the more water he would save as well. And Peters' strict battery diet thus conserved gallons of that scarce commodity as well. But all of the frugality he proposed came at a price. The partial shutdown of systems the Lim engineers had ordered between the free return burn and the PC Plus 2 was nothing compared to what Peters had planned for the Long Coast home. As soon as the speed-up maneuver was completed at 8.40 p.m. this evening, he would order the disconnection of virtually every electricity-consuming component the lunar module had, with the exception of three communication system and one of its antennas, the cabin fan which would circulate the available oxygen, and the water glycol coolant pumps to keep the temperature down in the other two systems. Power would be removed from the computer, guidance system, cabin heater, docking radar, landing radar, instrument panel displays, and hundreds of other pieces of equipment. All of the sacrificed equipment could be powered back up in the event that it was needed for a subsequent burn or other maneuver, but to the extent possible, it would remain off for the entire return trip. There were certainly issues in Bill Peter's power-down plan. For one thing, the already uncomfortable limb promised to become even more uncomfortable with the loss of cabin light plunging the cockpit into darkness and the loss of heat-generating instruments driving the already chilly temperature down even more. Additionally, no one had yet solved the problem of how to scrub the cabin air free of carbon dioxide without fresh lithium hydroxide canisters to absorb the noxious gas. But perhaps most troubling the limb would have to provide power for more than just its own systems. Before Lovell, Swaggart, and Hayes abandoned Odyssey, their dying command module had begun cannibalizing one of its 3 reentry batteries, automatically tapping into it for power after the three fuel cells expired. In order for the command module to be powered up again for re-entry, that battery would have to be recharged, and the only place to get the charge was from the already strained electrical system of Aquarius. Even as Peters was trying to figure out how to keep his spacecraft alive for the half week that lay ahead, John Aaron came by to borrow some current for his command module. Bill, Aaron said, trapping Peters in a corner of room 210 and speaking to him in the most winning Oklahoma drawl, You know, I can't run that command module on two and a half batteries. I know it, John, Peters said. And you know, I have to get it from you. I know that too. How much can you give me? How much do you need? Peters asked. Those are just little bitty batteries you've got. You don't need too much, do you? We've got to top off the depleted battery at about 50 amp hours, Aaron explained. And when they've abandoned ship, it was down to 16. So I'm going to have to ask you for about 34 amps. Peters thought for a moment. 34 amps I could do, but you're actually asking me for a lot more than that. My chargers and umbilicals only have an efficiency of 30 or 40 percent. To pump 34 amp hours all the way over to you is going to cost me about 100. I know it, Bill, Aaron said with genuine sympathy. Can you do it anyway? Bill Peters contemplated the Lim's 1800 available amp hours and ran some quick mental math. Yeah, I expect we can, Peters said. On the command module side of the room, things were even more complicated, and Aaron's ability to negotiate and cajole was going to be even more essential. But what was consuming most of the lead ECOM's time was not how he hoped to top off his batteries, but how he was going to power up Odyssey, whether he had Bill Peters' extra amps or not. Ordinarily, the process of powering up an Apollo command module was extraordinarily costly in terms of power and in time. Before a launch, pad technicians usually needed up to a full day to accomplish the task, using thousands of amp hours of ground power to warm up each system and check its operability before declaring it ready for flight. The process was painstaking but with unlimited amps and unlimited hours at their disposal, NASA engineers preferred to be as careful as possible. With Apollo 13, Aaron would not have this luxury. He and Krantz ran some preliminary power projections and came up with some disturbing numbers. Assuming the Odyssey's third battery was indeed successfully topped off, Aaron would have merely two hours of electricity to use when the time came for reactivating the command module. For an engineer schooled in NASA's hypercautious ways after Apollo 1, this seemed like extreme recklessness, but John Aaron believed it could be done. What concerned him most was how he was going to explain things to the flight controllers who oversaw the spacecraft's systems. In principle, every man in room 210 understood that engineering corners would have to be cut if the command module was going to make it home intact. But, in practice, nobody wanted to think that their system would be affected, and Aaron did not relish telling them the news that it would. With Krantz standing by, he gathered the command module controllers around the conference table and said, Fellas, I know I'm not supposed to know about all your systems, so bear with me and correct me when I make a mistake. But I think I got some ideas how we can get these ships powered up when the time comes. Now, the way I see it, we're going to have to have about two hours of battery time to go from a cold stop to a full power up. John, Bill Strale, the guidance and navigation officer, said, you can't do it in that time. Well, I think if we're willing to take a few shortcuts, we just might be able to pull it off, Aaron replied. Sure, you can pull it off, Strail said, but can you pull it off safely? I think maybe we can, Aaron said. I've got a few ideas here, just rough stuff, nothing set in stone, but maybe if we all took a look at them, we could all flesh them out a little bit. Almost apologetically, Aaron produced a sheaf of strip chart paper crowded with crayon markings. The scribbles ran on for page after page, representing dozens of projections, predictions, and computations Aaron had worked out with the help of Jim Kelly, his electrical systems specialist. It was immediately clear that this was not rough stuff. These were not a few ideas This was a brutally realistic, exhaustively considered breakdown of exactly how much power and how much time the ship had to work with, whether the controllers wanted to hear about it or not. Aaron knew the numbers were good, and the controllers, he suspected, knew it too. Aaron passed his papers around, let the controllers digest them, and the first of what promised to be dozens of hours negotiating bartering, and dickering began. The controllers had objections, and they had ideas, but what they did not have was time. According to the trajectory the crew was now following, Apollo 13 would collide with the Earth's atmosphere in less than 72 hours. Assuming the PC plus 2 burn went as planned later that night, the 72 hours would be slashed to 62 If Aaron didn't have a power-up checklist put together within 48 hours at the latest, the steely-eyed missile man was in real danger of losing his first crew. Jerry Griffin's gold team was not thinking about consumables. They would eventually. Griffin knew, like all the other teams, the gold team had days of resource management ahead of them, but right now they didn't have to concern themselves with that. Griffin had been in charge of this flight for more than five hours now and so far things had been relatively quiet. Recall, it was during Kranz's white team's watch that Apollo 13's tank-blowing accident took place. Then, during Lunny's black team's watch, the power down and free return maneuver was executed. Yet to come will be Wendler's maroon team watch that the PC-plus-2 burn will have to be tried. There was even some talk that Krantz's Tiger team might come out of isolation long enough to commandeer the consoles for the night's PC-plus-2 maneuver, then turn them back over to Wendler. And if that was what Krantz wanted, nobody would deny him. But whether it was the Tiger team or the Maroon team that would follow Griffin on console, The goal team leader's assignment was clear. Keep the ship functioning, help it avoid any further technical crises, and make sure it was properly prepped for the PC Plus 2 burn. So far, Griffin's group was performing all of its jobs well, with the exception of preparing for the PC Plus 2 burn. The earlier efforts of Lunny's black team to fine-tune Aquarius' platform, despite the debris clouds surrounding the ship, had met with failure, so Lunny had decided to attempt the free return burn, relying solely on the alignment transferred from the command module, hoping for the best, but with the knowledge the free return burn would be brief and any errors in the alignment of the platform would not be magnified that much. However, for the PC Plus 2 burn, things were different. Not only was the scheduled burn a sustained one, more than nine times longer than the short free return burn that had placed the crew back on target to return to Earth, but it would also take place close to 18 hours later. This was a problem because guidance platforms had a tendency to drift over time. And even if the coordinates level had transferred from Odyssey at 10 p.m. the previous night were still good at 2.43 in the morning, they would almost certainly have deteriorated by 8.10 the next night. For much of the past several hours, Griffin and his gold team had thus been in constant touch with the technicians in the simulator room across the Space Center campus, where Charlie Duke and John Young were trying to come up with some alignment solutions the black team guidance officers hadn't. But no luck so far. With star maps projected on the simulator's windows and an additional light source added to represent the sun, the two pilots had cartwheeled their mock limb through every simulated orientation they could think of, trying to move Aquarius's windows deep enough into shadow to black out the debris cloud and allow the true stars to appear. No matter which way they turned, though, the sun continued to wash out the limb, which set the debris twinkling and made even approximate star sightings impossible. As noon gave way to afternoon and the latest failures were reported back from the simulator building, Retro, Chuck Dieterich, Fido, Dave Reed, and Guido, Ken Russell, sat slumped at their consoles in the front row of Mission Control, utterly stuck. So, what's the game plan here? Reed asked his two colleagues. What do you fellows propose to try next? Dave, Dietrich said, I'm open to suggestions. I assume we are giving up on the stars, Russell said. If we can't see them, said Dietrich. We can't fly by them. I suppose we could always wait until we get behind the moon, Russell said. Once they're in shadow, the debris won't be lit so much. That cuts things pretty close, doesn't it? Reed responded. They only have half an hour of shadow and only two hours after that till burn. If something goes wrong, they won't have any time to get it right. Look, Russell said. Let's face it. The only thing we can see out there is the thing that's causing us all the trouble in the first place. The sun. Well, shoot, Dietrich said. Long as it's there, why don't we just use it? It's a star, isn't it? The computer recognizes it, doesn't it? No matter how much debris you have, once you go looking for the sun, you're sure not going to mistake it for anything else. He looked at Reed and Russell and the two men looked skeptically back at him. Ordinarily, a fine alignment of a guidance platform was a fantastically accurate thing. With the celestial sky stretching across the ship for 360 degrees in three dimensions, a solitary star was as close as you could get to the ideal of a single geometric point. Infinitely small, infinitely precise. An infinite number of them make up a single degree of arc. Take sightings on a few of these stars and you could torque your platform to a very precise level of accuracy. Using the sun instead of the stars was an entirely different matter. First of all, as viewed from Apollo 13, the sun was huge measuring 865,400 miles in diameter, and located only 93 million miles away from Earth. The local star sits in the sky like a huge white blob spreading across a full half degree of the heavens. Dozens of stars could fit within its big bright face. What Diedrich was proposing, Reed and Russell instantly understood was not to try to use this huge target to align the platform all over again, but rather simply to check the alignment the ship already had. If the astronauts set the guidance platform to go looking for the sun, and the platform drove the spacecraft, and specifically its alignment telescope, to within a degree or so of where the neighborhood star actually was, they would know that Aquarius had its bearings straight and that its platform could be trusted when it came time for the burn. But no sooner did Dietrich propose his plan than he himself began to have doubts. Of course, we are talking about a pretty fat target here, aren't we? Dieterich said. Very fat, Russell said. And what about the optics? Dieterich asked. You put the sun in an eyepiece where only a star is supposed to go, and you're going to fry your eye right out. They've got filters to take care of that part, Russell said. But I'm still not crazy about the whole idea. This is a hip pocket procedure we're trying. It's fine in the simulator, but do you really want to rely on it in flight? Not especially, said Dietrich. But do we really have any other choice? Russell and Reed looked at each other. Not a one, Russell said. Up at the flight director's console, Jerry Griffin was keeping an eye on his men in the front row and could see that they were deeply involved in discussing something. He really hoped that it was an alignment plan. Like every other flight director, Griffin kept a log at his console in which he made entries when key mission milestones arrived and passed. So far, the space he had expected to fill, with his fine alignment notations, remained blank, and he was concerned. The PC-plus-2 burn was seven hours away, and loss of signal when the spacecraft disappeared behind the moon was just over four hours away. The guidance officers were going to have to come up with at least one good idea, very soon. Dietrich, Reed, and Russell finally stood and headed toward Flight Director Griffin's station. Jerry, Russell said when they arrived at his console, we're going to have to use the sun to check the existing alignment. Griffin looked at his men in silence. Then he said, that's the best we can come up with? The best we can, Russell said, Once we get into the shadow of the moon, we can see if a few stars pop out and run a quick confidence check then, but that's only a fallback position. What's your comfort level on the sun alone? Griffin asked. Pretty high, Russell said with as much certainty as he could muster. Pretty high? Yeah, said Deteridge, but that might be as high as we're likely to get. Griffin studied the faces of his guidance officers and said, Call Charlie Duke and John Young. Get them to start trying this thing out in the simulator. Salutations from southeastern Indiana. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 276 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? Well, Episodes 1 through 98 are available on iTunes, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. Just look for the Space Rocket History Archive. Today, we salute my Rocket Emoji Donors. These donors have donated for at least two years in a row and receive a Rocket Emoji next to their name on the donors list. Thank you, Rocket Emoji Donors, for your continued support. Okay, I have some afterthoughts on this episode. First, I want to credit my sources. Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Flight by Chris Kraft, the Apollo 13 Flight Journal, the Johnson Space Center, the Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. I have a little bonus content this week. I thought I could work this in on the previous episode, but it ran so long I decided to put it in this episode. What it is, is the PAO update at 67 hours, 20 minutes elapsed time. It occurred actually before this episode, so it kind of goes with episode 275. Hopefully it will illustrate how the post PC plus 2 burn plan kept evolving. The PAO also mentioned how the uh, com problem would be solved possibly by the S4B crashing into the moon here it is
1: we're looking at a plan now that after the burn where we would power down to uh, 17 amps that's a minimum power down with with that power down we have uh, enough water to last to 155 hours ground elapsed time In addition to that, we would have the water from the portable life support systems. The water use rate at the 17 amp uh, power usage would be 2.68 pounds per hour. And we are uh, presently yawing manually 90 degrees every hour for passive thermal control. And we expect uh, communications to improve a little bit after S-4B impact uh, on the lunar surface, the uh, S-4B frequency is giving us a little trouble with this communications. Uh, After the impact we we will not have to turn the transponder in the the spacecraft off uh, during handovers between tracking stations.
0: You may have noticed how the 17 amps for the limb changed to 12 amps on this episode. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, baserockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. We were pleased to receive four donations to support the podcast over the past week. David R. from Australia donated at the Mercury level. Tyson from Colorado donated at the Vostok level. Jaco D. pledged on Patreon at the commercial level. David V. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Mercury level and earned his satellite emoji. Patreon supporters are now at 199 with a goal of reaching 218 before the end of the year. We have two months left in 2018 and we are 19 patrons short of our goal. Our total donors for 2018 have reached 369 with a goal of reaching 418 in 2018. That leaves us 49 donors short of the goal. October was the third worst month for contributions this year. It was about the same as August. So that was a touch disappointing. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon you for your financial support to keep the podcast going. And now is a special time of the year that I call the Emoji Maneuver Season. Emojis are placed next to your name on the donor's page as longevity awards two years in a row would equal a rocket emoji three years is a moon four years is a satellite and five years is the shooting star to execute the emoji maneuver make a contribution before the end of the year and then one in january to advance your emoji level in less than two months pretty slick huh To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donor's page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated for 2018, I certainly appreciate it. This week we're giving away the new official SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Christian Opperman. Christian Opperman, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com and tell me your address and I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode 277 out by next Thursday. I may be a little late on this episode since I'm traveling home next week, but I will shoot for next Thursday. So long for now.